welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. My name is Alex Cameron and I'm the founder of Decarb Connect. Um, and today I am joined by Wendy Owens, another founder, founder and CEO of Hexus. Hexus are a really interesting early stage business that's focused on farm to fiber plant-based materials. So these are materials that can replace materials typically made from wood or corn or fossil fuel. Uh, yeah, fossil fuels. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that and hear about how Hexus and how Wendy is in the early stages of beginning to really disrupt a massive market. So interesting opportunity. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy. Thank you very much, Alex. So here's my classic Alex always asks it question. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you've arrived at this point in time? So not just the professional piece, but also personally, what, what is it that's made you come to this stage where you're kind of tackling big climate issues in a very disruptive way? Well, it wasn't a straight line, I can tell you, from, from where I started to where we are now, for sure. Um, my my educational background is a master's degree in classical studies. So that's ancient Greek and Latin and, and the history and languages and so forth, uh, which I really do truly believe provided me with an excellent foundation for all that I've done since then. Um, I, I loved it. Uh, I learned a lot about the politics and science and language and, and, and law and so forth and how, where that all came from origins, not just looking at Rome and, and Greece, but also from the Egypts and the Phoenicians and so forth. And that actually, oddly enough, led me to start my first company out of graduate school, which was uh, uh, teaching teachers how to integrate technology into their curriculum. Uh, and that was a great experience when you have your first company because you have no clue what you're doing. Uh, you're all gung-ho and full of hope. And then now what do you do? And how do you make this thing run? So um, that was, let's just say, a good experience. And then I moved into materials engineering. Uh, just, I know that seems very off of the mark, but uh, we have a family company. We went from uh, early technology development all the way through patents and then a, a phase, uh, I guess a seed and a series A round. Um, and then it was a family thing. And so from a personal level, I think I was, I, was, I had to move away from it. <laughs> so I uh, sort of picked myself up and said, well, what's next? You know, what am I gonna do here? I've got these little kids and, um, it, you know, I, I need something to do. So I started working with uh, nonprofits, uh, which is humbling and educational in both cases in that, you know, we were working with people with chronic diseases. Uh, so I became the uh, national head of research for a large national nonprofit focused on bleeding disorders. And I did work with the CDC, ran national studies for them, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, but I worked closely with people. And I work closely with the, you know, the health and conditions. And you know, these people don't want to be defined by their diseases. So we looked at lots of different areas, you know, the, the, uh, their jobs and their love lives and so forth. Uh, and it was, it was humbling. Like I said, it was, it was met some wonderful folks through it. But I really felt like um, I needed to do, to do something to make a difference for the earth. It was, I saw a lot of pressure on what's happening with climate change. My first career actually was in mountaineering. So I had spent a lot of time outside and, and leading trips and hiking canoeing trips. So for me, I just thought, well, it, it's time. It's time now to go back to that entrepreneurial setting. I, I love this. So it ended up being, this is my fourth company. There was a, a, a gene therapy company in the middle that was bought and sold really quick. I was just a C-suite on that. But during that time, 
I also spent 14 years as an advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Rep on uh, international trade policy. And that had us looking at lateral, multilateral, bilateral trade agreements with countries around the world. It made me comfortable with being international and, and working with people on an international level, whether we had a language barrier or not. So, uh, and then when I started Hexus, one of the first places we ended up doing uh, some work with our first customer was actually in Europe. So definitely not a straight line to getting here. Kind of interesting though, isn't it? That it layers in, um, like most, I think nearly every founder we speak to on the podcast does have very different backgrounds, different experiences, but quite often what they all have is a layering of experience. So what you've got there is that kind of technology piece, that comfort with how the kind of foundation nonprofit sphere works, you know, which I imagine helps with grants allocation, all sorts of other things. That, that yeah. kind of comfort again with policy and as you say, the international kind of trade experience all layers up to provide quite a, a unique lens. So, so Hexus then, as I explained, or my explanation is probably not the best one, but a farm to fiber <laughs> plant-based materials company. So tell us about that, you know, what, what what is Hexus? What stage are you at at the moment? And then obviously we will dig further into the, the business case, the use case, the, and so forth. Sure. So I, we talk about Hexus as a biomaterials company because our goal really is to make the highest and best use of biomass. And whether that's biomass that is purposefully grown for specific applications or it's even agricultural residue. But we're starting with the purposefully grown and learning a lot from that. So uh, what we have are proprietary varieties of giant perennial grasses that can replace wood or supplement wood uh, and replace food crops and energy uh, and also uh, fossil fuel based raw materials in many applications. The, the first grass that we've developed is called xanograss and it's, uh, it looks like corn and bamboo had a baby. Big, long, tall stalks with these pretty little corn leaves. It's actually in the same family as both. So what we've been working on is the commercialization of that and finding the right market for it, testing uh, and doing a lot of intellectual property coverage. Uh, but we are now in that commercial stage, ready to move forward. And then clients then, we were talking actually before we started recording about how some of your inbound kind of prospects, inbound clients are, uh, are coming to you, but what's the, what's the problem that clients typically are, are bringing to you? And I guess that would also then point to the different markets that you play into? Sure. You know, it, it's interesting. And uh, I think everyone would love me to say that they want to go green and they want to be more sustainable. Uh, so I'm going to tell you, no, that's really at the bottom of the list. Uh, they do want to have a new material that they can use that is lower cost for one. Wood prices have been very high, for example, uh, and moving agricultural residuals around is very expensive. Um, and there's lots of competition for wood and, you know, fossil fuel, you know, our prices are going up there as well. So they want a low cost, high quality plant-based material. They want it to have consistent properties. So that material is always the same when it comes in. They want a reliable supply. Everybody wants that reliable supply. Um, they want it usable in their existing systems and facilities. Uh, and they want this material to allow their current products to retain the functionality and aesthetic appeal they currently have or make a new product that, that also has high functionality and aesthetic appeal. Uh, and then they, they, in the United States in particular, they're looking at meeting sustainability goals, uh, including our scope one, two, and three objectives. And fortunately for us, our uh, production of our fiber 
also sequesters a significant amount of carbon. So they may be interested in those carbon offsets as well. Jonathan, maybe just sort of dig into that a little bit more because I think when people are, are not close to the kind of plant-based materials world or you know plants and farms as a as a way of uh, sequestering co2 it's not mm. it's not in it's not kind of instinctive to understand how or why rather so just speak to that a little bit more because it, it kind of plays into some of the, the later questions sure so a lot of what we see with biomass and most people when they think about biomass they often will think of trees first and so when you when you're growing trees, it's great, they're sequestering carbon, but when you cut them down, you actually lose that carbon sink. So um, you may replant and it'll take time to re-accumulate re the carbon. So for us with giant grasses and for Xana grass in particular, what happens is we're able to plant this grass once and we'll have a plantation that will last 15 to 20 years. So we don't have to go back in and retill soil or replant. Uh, so that's keeping all the carbon that's being sequestered by the underground network of roots. Uh, in the ground. And there's a significant underground network of roots. I mean, we're talking about a ton of carbon sequestered in underground uh, annually per acre per year. So that, that's just a lot of material under there. Uh, and so we, unlike a, a, a hemp, for example, where you have to go in and plant it every year, or corn, where again, you're planting every year and might have to till, and they're trying no-till techniques. Um, the importance is that we're sequestering that carbon deep even down in that 100 year mark under 30 centimeters. Uh, so this becomes more important as you look at the supply chain. So if you look up your supply chain, if you're making a end product, uh, let's say you're making furniture, for example, uh, and you're using particle board and that particle board is made of wood and they say it's sustainable and so forth. But if you add the element of a plant-based fiber into that particle board, you can look upstream and say, wow, you know, they're growing it on marginal land they're using no pesticides, they're using very little water, uh, and the, our life cycle analysis really hits uh, uh, beautifully in terms of being really low input, low requirement, and so forth. And then high carbon sequestration. Those are important. Okay, useful. I think, yeah, really good to have that sort of visual on an audio podcast of that the nature of the sequestration being like deep in the ground and this very complex web of roots that isn't disturbed. It's not disturbed during the, during the harvesting process. Okay, well then let's let's step into some of these use cases then because I think you, we've mentioned fiberboard, but it, what fascinates me about this is that there are some quite quite distinct use cases that don't necessarily feel that they're linked. So, so let's have a look at those. T tell us a bit about the kind of main product areas and the type of kind, and if you can name them, great. Um, of, of kind of use cases you're working on at the moment? Sure. Uh, so let's start with energy because energy is something that's become so expen expensive lately that, uh, and, and I don't think we're going to see prices falling uh, anytime soon. Uh, and one of the things that people are doing are infusing wood to replace co uh, coal and fossil fuels in many applications. And one of these applications is actually a direct combustion energy production. So where they burn the coal or they burn the, the fuel in order to produce energy that turns the turbines that create, you know, creates the electricity. So based on this, uh, there's a market for what are called energy pellets. And these energy pellets are produced by companies that we're uh, testing with like Ram Fuels. And they use these pellets in their combustion, direct combustion. So this market for energy pellets is about 18.2 billion by 2027 is what they're estimating. So it's a big market. So for us, what we're able to do is uh, supplement 
that would or replace wood and coal in energy production with these pellets. Pellets are pretty straightforward. You go in and for us, we can chop down our entire big field of the plants, dry the material, pelletize it, and those pellets can be shipped just about anywhere in the world. So our performance is equal to wood, and that makes it a, a really strong candidate uh, and big opportunity for these folks not to have to say, yeah, you know, we do cut down some trees uh, and we do have to you know, use little trees sometimes and so forth. So that's that's the biomass example. Fiberboard you've mentioned. And then tell us there's a, another one that obviously, you know, I'm very interested in, which is the sustainable aviation. So talk to us about the, the fit there. Uh, so fiberboards are interesting because they're made from mostly um, wood residuals from the timber industry. So if you make it, you're making boards, then you have this leftover dust and, and pieces of the tree that you don't use. So the industry started in back in the 60s and now is growing by 2030 to a $55 billion a year market size. So it's a, it's a big market, but wood is expensive and there are more regulations about cutting trees and what trees you can remove and how many you can remove. Uh, there's managed forest and so forth, but nonetheless, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a cheap um, source of raw material as it was before. So for us, what we're working with are companies like Finza uh, and uh, uh, Roseburg and, and, other, and other big uh, companies that produce their own fiber boards. And fiber boards would be particle board, medium density fiber board, uh, high density fiber board, and even oriented strand board, where you are supplementing that some of the wood in that board with our Xano fiber specifically. So that works very well because uh, you know, the performance of our fiber is very woody and that uh, we can mix right in with that wood and you can't really tell the difference between our fiber and the wood once they're in the boards. So it doesn't change the performance of the board and actually, actually improves the water absorption performance. Uh, and it, it's just a great way for them to supplement their wood and lower their cost overall. Uh, and for us, we can grow locally. So we can grow in marginal soil, again, not displacing food crops, right near their production facilities. Uh, so we're shipping less than 100 kilometers uh, and, and having that material right there uh, locally. And so marginal land use, you know, what, what does that mean? That's obviously not, that's not a phrase I'm familiar with. I'm sure some of the listeners will know, but what, what types of land does that indicate that you could, you could be using? Great question. So marginal land is not a, an official term, so to speak, but in general, what that means is land that can no longer produce food crops. So it may be land that uh, was once a sugar camp, cane plantation or was once uh, used to grow lots of corn, but uh, for example, in Northern Texas and Oklahoma here in the United States, no longer can be used because it's highly salinated because they used up all the groundwater to grow corn. Uh, it's land that uh, may be former strip mines or uh, some kind of contamination site. Uh, so we can grow this grass in that soil. Uh, and the nice thing about xanograss is that it actually will remediate that soil and turn it back into usable soil for food production again. So that presumably gives you some interesting you know, opportunities as well in different regions. I mean, I know we're going to come on to your European land use but presumably you could be looking you know in the subcontinents Asia other parts of the world Africa I don't know I mean is are there any limitations in terms of um yeah climate or anything else or is it kind of pretty pretty 
resistant to everything. <laughs> well, we, we certainly can grow in temperate climates. We can't grow on top of mountains or on the sides of steep hills because they, you know, <laughs> you can't harvest up there, but no, in top of the mountains, it's too cold. But for example, we are growing in Hungary. Uh, we do get snow there and it does have freezing temperatures during the winter, but that's not a problem. And then we also will be producing under a joint venture agreement with the uh, Canadian gas and oil company in Indonesia. And there are just tremendous amounts of land that have been strip mined for coal, uh, have been former tree, tea plantations, for example. Um, one of the things we're able to do is go in and remediate that soil and still have a, a byproduct from that remediation uh, using for biofuels or, or, or other applications. And then returning that soil either for rewilding so they can become you know, the, the, the forests that have been degraded around the world in one place or another, or for food crop production, because we are certainly going to need more food um, as, as we go forward. So that's, that's one of the benefits of, of our grass for within these uh, use of marginal soil. Okay, and then I think I, I sort of went off on a bit of a segue and pulled you out of the use cases. So we talked about the biomass pellets, we talked about fiberboard, and then well, I'm, I'm going to come back in with this sustainable aviation fuel because I just find that fascinating. And as an international event organiser, I need aviation fuel to become way more sustainable. So tell us about the application there. How does that work? So, yeah. So basically this plant, this grass, is a U.S. Environmental Protection Agency approved bioenergy crop. And that meets, means it meets our, here in the United States, our renewable fuel standards. And there are many different applications in terms of fuels, but sustainable aviation fuel being probably the largest, what's going to be 400 to 500 billion gallons that are being required by 2050 to move people trillions of miles. Um, it's just a really excellent opportunity for us because we can produce on a large scale. Our grass, when we harvest it, that fiber, xanofiber, can be converted into an ethanol product or uh, into a bio crude. And those are precursor materials for production of sustainable aviation fuel. So we are where things start in the like farm to fiber, farm to fuels, what I like to call this, is we start all the way upstream. There's a precursor processing that has to happen. And then from that fuel that's, uh, that's, that's created, um, it can then be turned into sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, it's, it's very important right now that we, um, we move towards more advanced feedstocks for sustainable aviation fuels because they're using fats, greases, and oils right now. Um, and that just can't last. There's not enough of it. And uh, that's only going to be about worth 10% of the sustainable aviation fuel that we need uh, going forward. So we've been fortunate and uh, we just applied for a, a DOE grant, a Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy grant our second round uh, phase two, uh, and we received support from both Boeing and Lanzajet, uh, letters of support from them for the effort that we're making in sustainable aviation fuel. Those are quite impressive uh, brands to have kind of stepping up to support you. So that, that must be a great boost, not just to the grants application, but I mean, that's like, you know, as a founder, yes. in early stage, <laughs> it's, just, it's huge, isn't it? Like yeah, support. yeah. I, I'm very grateful. I mean, this is going to be an $80 billion market by 2028. And to have folks that are end users of the fuels and then producer of the fuel uh, to, to have uh, interest enough and in, in faith in us that we can be a, a feedstock for this 
massive amount of production that's necessary is, is really heartening. Yes, as a founder, it's heartening, yes. <laughs> so let me chip in with a, a different a different kind of question around this area of you know the development of pretty disruptive plant-based technology that could be used in all of these applications. So often when we have early stage businesses on here, policy and regulation can, you know, can come with um, both a bit of love and hate feelings mm -hmm. from the founders. And I'm wondering, where do you sit on it? What's your perspective on, on regulations and their impact on, on your work? Well, I would say our goal is to disrupt without interrupting. Uh, and so we need to look at regulations very carefully. We, we, you know, we want to make sure that we're a drop-in replacement for these different products and so forth. Uh, but in order to be disruptive, we, yes, have to align with regulations. And fortunately, you know, with any st startup, new company, timing is everything. And timing, as it relates to uh, regulations for us, has really been good. Uh, so as I mentioned, we're an EPA-approved bioenergy crop. We meet those renewable fuel standards. And actually, the, uh, the use of our crop would qualify for what are called RINs, which are tradable, um, marketable uh, units for decarbonization encouragement. So the focus, I think with that, you know, it has to come from regulations in order to help us decarbonize our economy. And we certainly are seeing that in many different, uh, all over the world, you know, regulatory requirements for the use of certain amount of biofuel versus uh, fossil fuel. Uh, the, the higher uh, use of non-fossil uh, fuel-based um, uh, cups and bowls and spoons and, and you know, all those disposables. So for us, those regulations play into our favor. So going back to sustainable aviation fuel, for example, there are new requirements from, especially from Europe, about minimal use of sustainable aviation fuel for flights and such. Uh, they're shifting a little bit into minimal, minimizing greenhouse gas emissions. But that's really important for us because again, we're sequestering carbon in the ground. Um, we are not a fossil fuel based product. Uh, we encapsulate lots of carbon within anything that we're producing, that people are producing from our plant from a structural and non-structural application. I, overall, regulations where they can hinder companies and, and, and business growth, uh, Yes, absolutely, that's possible. But when it comes to decarbonizing and, uh, and focusing on climate change, and they're necessary. I think we need that encouragement from uh, regulatory bodies, national governments, uh, just because it, right, if we could easily maintain the status quo and continue to use fossil fuels, we really could. We have the infrastructure for it. We have people who have been doing it most of their careers. Uh, we all know how to use plastics. And yeah, so pressure on change, regulations make that. All right. Well, let's kind of step back again into the, the clients that you're, you're seeing. So you've talked about these, these kind of main application areas. And you also said something right at the beginning, which I just think is really interesting. Because a lot of the time, I think I assume, oh, the reason that this early stage business is getting so much attention is because of their green credentials. But your point was actually, that's not necessarily the main driver. So the main driver for clients pursuing a feedstock change, to just remind us of those. And, and is are you starting to hear that the sustainable slash net zero slash decarbonization benefit, is that is that a shifting priority or, yeah, just to give us your perspective on that. Yeah, that's great. Four years ago when I started the company, it actually was being quote unquote green and sustainable 
was not at the top of folks' list uh, when I started doing customer discovery and talking to people about this. It really wasn't. There's been uh, a, a sort of, uh, obviously in four years, a rapid movement towards uh, more sustainability. Uh, there, the pressure is both uh, from a regulatory side, but also just people. People do not want, and they, you, you experience uh, serious weather patterns and, and hurricanes and high heat and drought and so forth. And people are saying, wait a minute, we see this happening. So they are also demanding these more green products. Uh, and that sometimes there's greenwashing associated with the, those things. So the, you know, there is a need for those third-party uh, nonprofits, for example, that do the, hey, this is, uh, you know, you have to meet these standards in, in order to really qualify. So we are starting to see that. We're seeing the, the, the gold standard um, roundtable for sustainable biomaterials. Uh, those are out there now, which are putting parameters and boundaries on what is green and considered uh, uh, truly sustainable. So yes, I would say companies are moving towards that. I, we had an email yesterday from an eco-packaging company saying they you know, looking for a different type of fiber outside of wood or hemp or bagasse or something like that's, that's you know, not perennial and, and not as sustainable. And looking, and then this morning from a company in Europe that was looking for bioplastic, fiber for bioplastics. So people are, are you know, the, the timing is good for us because people are really starting to make these, to searching for alternatives to um, fossil fuel based with raw materials and wood uh, and what are considered first generation uh, bioenergy crops. So we're fortunate in that right now. So, so we've got good timing. We've got broadly speaking, a policy environment that is supporting the work you're doing. You're seeing clients come forward and prospects, you know, that, that kind of market development is looking great. So as always for an early stage business, there are still kind of bottlenecks or there are still impediments to a shift in activity that you need to see. So from your view where you sit now, you've got all these things working in your favor. What's the kind of the next uh, shift that needs to happen to see this kind of a real change in sort of broader feedstock use, do you think? Well, so it's just making people aware, one versus awareness. I think people being aware that uh, these feedstocks are out there. Uh, two, it, for those of us that are producing these feedstocks, we have to proliferate them and make them readily available uh, and, and sort of hone what we're doing in terms of our business model and our intellectual property to really make this commercially feasible on a grand scale. I mean, we, if we were doing something for a uh, biofuels uh, refinery, they need 10,000 dry tons of bio of biomass a day. That's a lot, <laughs> that is a lot. So, you know, we have to be able to, to, to ramp up to meet those needs. Uh, and then I would say that um, uh, right now we produce food and our food is great, we love it, but we also produce a for every kilo of food that we produce, we produce 1.5 kilograms of biomass waste, residual waste from uh, agriculture. And then 60% of 140 gigatons of that biomass produced every year is from grains. So from um, oats, wheats, et cetera. We harvest right now for food. We don't harvest for fiber. I think there, that there's going to be a push to more to harvesting for food and fiber together. Uh, and I think that's feasible. So there's, you know, in order to move into using what we 
put so much input into the water we put in, the, the, the nitrogen fertilizer, the, the effort, the labor and so forth in order to recoup that investment. So see a return, a full return on our investment. We need to move towards uh, being able to use that residual biomass uh, and harvest it and process it in a way that makes it accessible to the same companies that are interested in our biomass. So that's ultimately our goal. So we'd be starting with, a, again, our, our xanograss crop, but we ultimately, again, want to make that highest and best use of any biomass that's out there. So we're learning a lot and hopefully we'll contribute to that in the future. And, and for you, so for, for Hex as a, as a business and for you as the founder, what, what's next? You know, what, what's happening right now and what's the next kind of, okay, the next two years look like what? What's happening for you? Yeah, so right now we're actually raising funds, our first fundraise. Uh, um, I bootstrapped this company until now, so we have a really clean cap table. And uh, we're doing our first round of fundraising in order to support our really commercialization. That's where we are. We are at you know, really getting out there, planning large scales, um, meeting needs of our customers uh, and going forward. And I think what we're really focused on is finding uh, several really good use cases that we can plant on the large scale process, har harvest production, harvest processing, and integrate it into whatever the product is uh, for our customers. Uh, and that's what we're gonna be working on for the next couple of years. We have some grants that are, uh, we're applying for as well. We're looking at new applications, uh, testing. Uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, we are in that, uh, the hockey stick. I'm hoping that we're at that, starting up with a big curve of that hockey stick for, for uh, the company, yeah. And when you think about, you know, every company has the right investor, you know, that the investor that either brings, uh, you know, well, brings in addition to money, <laughs> whether it's experience or, or some other perspective, what, what's the right investor for you or investors plural, would you say? So what I'm really looking for are investors that will work with us and can complement what we're doing and also open up opportunities, but also then also support us internally. So in our, our, our management practices and our hiring and our policies and so forth. Those are so critical and things that as a CEO, as you know, you know, you're, you're always outward looking and moving forward and vision and such. You really need that help uh, and people with experience to help you put in place those best practices. Uh, also, uh, you know, we're going to do a round of financing, which may be an equity round. Uh, this is our seed round. And then we also are looking at the opportunity to work with someone who can take us not just to do an equity round, but also uh, perhaps doing revenue financing against supply agreements. Uh, someone who might say, hey, let's roll out a separate company. Let's start doing our own textiles because we can use this, this uh, fiber to make rayon, uh, viscose. Uh, let's, let's do a textile brand. Let's roll out something. So I'd like a little adventure in there as well. Uh, that, that would be great. And someone who uh, shares our values, certainly. Uh, we start with kindness. That's number one for people in the earth. And then we go from there in terms of, uh, of you know, that that's our, our, our base. So that's who I, you know, if I could <laughs> make wishes, that's what I would wish for. Well, it sounds, I mean, it's going to be a really exciting few years for you, I think, Wendy. I think it's there's plenty of um, early stage businesses out there who can see a long-term mass market future, but you've, you've got markets that you know already have size and scale and money that you can play into. And that's a pretty unique position I would think so <laughs> yeah we're very excited about it uh, again this is my fourth company so I <laughs> you know there, we're, there's nothing like experience going into it and, and before even starting it saying 
you know, would this actually work? Uh, you know, can we integrate into the supply chain? Can we make this happen? Um, you know, my materials engineering, I, I saw this graph and I was like, oh my gosh, that thing's, wow, we could, oh my, things that we could do with that. Uh, and I really hadn't considered the energy side, but that's become more prominent in what we're doing as well. Uh, we're excited, we're having fun, uh, which is really important. Uh, and uh, I think uh, others are excited about our products. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> Well, thanks again for, for coming on, uh, Wendy. I really appreciate it. And I'll, yeah, interested to share your success when you get to the end of your funding round. And for those who are interested in Wendy and in the work of Hexus, we'll make sure that in the show notes that I, I share some useful links. So I'll, I'll get those off uh, Wendy before I let her escape back to work. But thanks again, Wendy. Lovely to have you on. Thank here. you, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.